Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. How do we feel? I don't mean our mental health, at least not today. I mean, how does our skin, down at the cellular level, feel heat or feel the pressure of a handshake? Scientists have long known there must be some molecular machines that actually do this stuff, much as specialized cells in our eyes perceive light. But the actual mechanisms had eluded scientists. Figuring that out has landed UCSF's David Julius and Artem Potaputian of Scripps Research the 2021 Nobel Prize in Medicine. They join us to explain our body's remarkable capabilities and how their discoveries could unlock new ways of treating pain without opiates. And then, the ironic memes of Hispanic Heritage Month. That's all coming up next on Forum after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. When we eat a chili pepper and it burns in the mouth and makes us break out in a sweat, what exactly is going on? In English, hot means both that kind of spicy and also hot as in temperature. But it took science to prove that our bodies actually perceive the chemical that chili peppers produce with the same molecular mechanism that detects very high temperatures. That work ended up a central piece of the science that just won UCSF's David Julius the Nobel Prize in Medicine, Julius shares the award with Scripps Research, Scripps Researches, Ardem Pataputian. Their combined research has created new foundational knowledge on how our cells convert external stimuli, like hot chilies or the force of a hug, into signals the brain can process in parsing our environment. It's a science show today, and we're honored to be joined by Nobel laureates David Julius and Ardem Pataputian, who are here to tell us about their groundbreaking explorations. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Alexis. Great to be here with you and Artem today. Talk about science. Absolutely. It's um, very happy to be here. David Julius, it, it seems wild that we did not know how we perceived heat, given that we've sort of understood sight and hearing for a long time. So why did these particular senses prove difficult to understand scientifically? Yeah, that's a good question. Right, that... Our sense of touch and pain <clears throat> lag behind, particularly in the molecular realm. Uh, you know, there are various reasons for that. Some are technical. You know, if you want to study the eyeball, as George Wall did decades ago, you can go to the slaughterhouse and get a bucket of cow eyeballs and do a lot of biochemistry because all of the apparatus is, is, is relegated to or restricted to this one organ. Uh, you know, in the, in the pain pathway or in somatosensation, um, the nerve fibers ramify all over the body. Their cell bodies are restricted in certain areas, but not as well as in tissues like the or organs like the eye and the nose. So that's part of it. And the other part is that, you know, we didn't really have many sort of genetic or functional clues as to what types of molecules might be involved in things like temperature and pressure sensation. Um, not many clues from other systems. And so it was really kind of a blind search, I would say. Yeah. Adam, could you tell us about your research on the on touch, on the detection of, of pressure, and kind of what was the process you actually followed to discover the, the proteins and molecular machines that do this work? Sure. Um, so kind of um, the two sides of sensing physical forces, uh, as David alluded, um, 
in addition to the other senses, most cells in our bodies communicate through chemicals, and we've learned quite a bit about this in, in the last decades. But what we have focused on is this, again, translation of physical forces such as temperature and pressure into chemical or electrical signals that, that cells understand. And so um, in, in addition to temperature, pressure, of course, we knew is very important for uh, touch and pain. Um, but again, the sensors for these were not known. And so our process was to kind of take a reductionist approach. And since none of these sensors were known, we just tried to find as simple of a system, in this case, cells uh, growing in a Petri dish that respond to pressure and then start from that there and just one by one knock out or delete candidate genes and see if this mm -hmm. pressure sensing ability is gone. So, so you create all these different problem. lines of cells and then literally press on the cells to see if they responded? Yeah, I, I wish I could show a video through radio, but I can't, but that's exactly what we do. We, we actually just screen for cells that have this response, but the process is exactly that. So, you know, with a uh, micrometer long, uh, thick pipette, just poke on them and electrically record this very small nanoamp level currents um, to see if they respond to pressure. And then using genetic approach to knock down candidates and see which one is required. So once you've got the gene, because genes code for proteins, you then have this particular protein and you can start to figure out how it actually works, right? So when something, a force presses on a cell, how does that protein actually do its job? So this is actually work in progress. Um, what we call is we have figured out the structure of, uh, of piezo, these mechanosensors, and they are very unique shape. They extend arms into the... Uh, the lipid bilayer, which surrounds every cell. And they seem to do one thing and one thing only, and that is sense membrane tension. Now, exactly how that works out, there are hypotheses out there, but again, it's an active form of research. But you kind of nailed it. The two things that we got very interested in when we found this gene or protein is how does it work? How does it sense tension? But also, what does it do in an animal, in, whether it's in humans or animal models, what is its role in physiology and in disease, during diseases? Yeah, it's so interesting. Dave Julius, I want to walk through the kind of the basics of your uh, discoveries around heat. And maybe you could do it like this. When somebody bites into, you know, habanero and that, uh, that heat that they feel uh, in their mouth, like what's the whole chain that gets from, you know, the pepper to their brain to be like, ah, ah, milk, milk. Like how does that actually work? <laughs> yeah. So the pepper... Uh, has a uh, a pungent ingredient. It has a few, but the main one is something called capsaicin, which I think we're all familiar with, and um, that's the thing that that gives peppers their zing. And and the hotness of a pepper is really based on, you know, exactly how much uh, capsaicin there is in it, what the concentration is. So when you chomp on a hot pepper, or more fatally, make the mistake of chopping a hot pepper and sticking your finger in your eye, uh, that capsaicin uh, comes in contact with sensory neurofibers, you know, in your mouth or your eye. Uh, and then it interacts with this, uh, with this receptor, uh, much like piezo, it's an ion channel, which means that when it's activated, it sort of opens up like a donut in the membrane of the cell and allows ions like sodium and calcium ions to flow in. And this, act, this, this initiates an electrical current uh, which is really the uh, the mode of communication for neurons, of course. They communicate through electrical and then chemical processes. So 
So when you eat the chili pepper, the capsaicin interacts with this molecule, which we call TRYP-V1, and, um, and uh, upon binding to it, and then it opens up this little donut in the membrane, electrical current happens, that sends a signal to neurons to which that, that nerve fiber is connected in the spinal cord, and then through a whole series of connections that eventually reaches your brain where you interpret it as something painful. So I want to ask you, you know, did you look set out to look for, you know, heat sensors and then went looking for hot peppers, like in that kind of commonsensical <laughs> connection? Or uh, was this just kind of a happy yeah. accident of the research? Yeah, more a happy accident. I mean, it was um, what we were looking for were molecules that we thought would be important in pain sensation because it had been known since the 70s or 60s or 70s from work from labs in Hungary from somebody named Jansko Gabor uh, 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 that um, that the that capsaicin and chili peppers is a very potent activator of nerve fibers that are that were thought to be dedicated to pain sensation. So so sensitivity to chili peppers became sort of a functional hallmark of those neurons. So we decided to, you know, as many people had tried to do, to take capsaicin and use it as a chemical probe to identify its receptor, if there was one, on the surface of these pain-sensing neurons as a way to sort of get a toehold into understanding molecular devices that generate pain. So we did that. And then it was only after we identified the gene and the protein encoding this capsaicin receptor that we began to ask, well, why do we normally have this in our bodies? You know, it's kind of like opiate receptors. Opiate receptors see morphine from the poppy plant, but that's not their normal role in the body. They see opiate peptides in the body. So what was the role of this capsaicin receptor? And after trying a few different stimuli that we thought were relevant to pain, we realized that it's a very sensitive receptor for heat. And then, so it was really sort of through that, you know, logical chain. But in retrospect, of course, it seems so obvious, but... Um, you know, there were other possibilities. And in fact, that receptor not only responds to heat, but it responds to a lot of inflammatory agents that are produced during tissue injury, which is also part of its role in pain sensation. Well, and you know, one of the fascinating things uh, about your work is that this kind of class of protein, right, they they actually have a temperature range. There's a few different ones, and they actually have different temperature ranges that they respond to, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, so um, another protein that both Artem and I have worked on is something called TRYP-M8. That's sort of a, uh, a molecular cousin of the capsaicin receptor. Its um, natural product activator is menthol from mint leaves. And also, as we all know, mm. uh, mint and eucalyptus, eucalyptus, eucalyptol from eucalyptus are natural cooling agents. Uh, and not surprisingly, that receptor, TRYP-M8, is also a sensor for cold. And in animals that lack that uh, that receptor, work that both, from both our labs has shown, uh, those animals have real deficits in their ability to discriminate a warm from a cold surface. So interesting. You know, Ardem uh, Padaputian, as David Julius was alluding to earlier, these proteins within our bodies actually play sort of multiple roles. And the class that you've found, these piezo um, uh, ion channels, what else do they do in our bodies aside from detect touch? Um, yeah, that's an interesting question for us too, because just like David, um, you know, after identifying the channel, we go into what we call in vivo situations in the animal and see what it's required for. So what we found is that in one sense, it's completely specific because I call it professional mechanosensors because we really haven't been able to find anything else that can activate it. 
On the other hand, it seems to be playing a role in many different instances where uh, pressure sensing is important in the body. And, and again, uh, the way David alluded, some of this we didn't think about at first. Uh, also, I second that they were perhaps uh, in retrospect uh, obvious. So we have found that piezos are involved in sense of touch, sense of proprioception, which is I consider it one of our most important senses that most people don't know about it. This is how you know where your limbs are compared to your body. So this is how you can close your eyes and touch your nose. Um, and also absolutely required for just simple tasks like standing up and, and walking. And the reason most people don't know about it is simply because I think you can't turn it off like your vision. You can't close your eyes and say, oh, okay, this is what life is without sight. Um, and actually there are human beings now that have been identified that do not have piezo 2 and they are very uncoordinated learn to walk very late in life uh, some of them are wheelchair bound wow. and so we're really finding out the, the importance of, of this channel in variety of these sensory modalities it's also required for certain type of pain and many of internal organ sensing such as blood pressure and bladder filling etc wow we're talking with the winners of this year's Nobel Prize in Medicine, Ardem Padaputian, professor in the Department of Neuroscience at Scripps Research, and David Julius, professor and chair of the Department of Physiology at UC San Francisco. What are your questions for the two Nobel laureates? Call now at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum Ahead. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking with the winners of this year's Nobel Prize in Medicine. David Julius is professor and chair of the Department of Physiology at UC San Francisco. And Ardem Padaputian is professor in the Department of Neuroscience at Scripps Research. Join us with your questions. Call now, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Or you can get in touch on Twitter and Facebook. We're at KQED Forum. And, of course, you can email your questions for these Nobel laureates to forum at kqed.org. David Julius, I wanted to talk a little bit about the application of your work that many people seem very excited about, which is in pain management. So how how do you see this work possibly translating into something that uh, people would use for pain management out in the world? Well, I, I think the goal of these of molecular studies, you know, not just from my lab, but many labs around the world, is to identify potential new targets for analgesics that can control pain uh, 
you know, in addition to the limited repertoire of drugs that we have now, which mostly include aspirin and other non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, and then, of course, opiate uh, analgesics. And, um, you know, that's a long process, but I, I think the goal of our work is to identify these molecules and then understand their mechanism of action and their relationship to pain. And what I mean by pain is, you know, we always use this word pain like we do cancer. So uh, it's not just one malady, it's a collection of different types of pain that likely have different mechanisms. You know, migraine pain is different from inflammatory bowel syndrome pain, et cetera, et cetera. And we really wanna understand what the different molecules like TRIP-V1 and others that we've worked on, what their contribution is to persistent pain syndromes of different types. And by knowing that kind of information, I think this helps, you know, pharmaceutical firms target these these receptors uh, in for particular ways. So there are have been a lot of drug screening activities for some of the molecules that that we and others have identified. You know, it's a long process. Um, some of those drugs work well in certain clinical trials. Some of them have what are called on-target side effects. But the goal in identifying molecules that are expressed on nerve fibers as opposed to other regions in the brain is the hope that they'll be more specific. So unlike opiates, they won't act at all kinds of sites in the nervous system that create all these side effects like respiratory depression, constipation, addiction, etc. Mm. Ardem uh, Patiputian, in your work with dealing with pressure, one of the fascinating things is that our, you know, we feel pressure in our stomachs when we eat. And so some people have sort of made the obvious jump to, well, maybe we could, you know, there'd be some sort of food management aspect um, to some of this work. Um, could you tell us a little bit about how that, how you think that system works? Um, we're actually very interested in this. And um, as an example of how this is ongoing research, not work all done. This is actually something we're actively working on. It's not published. And indeed, this, this is the exact logic that we have started this project on. And that is when you eat a very big meal, you feel full, which is a very mechanical sensation, of course. Um, but again, if you look at the literature um, of work done in this area, most of work on satiety is focused on sensing nutrients, which are chemicals. And of course, these play a very important role, but there's very little um, known about how much the stomach stretch contributes to satiety, uh, how much you eat, when you eat, and diabetes, obesity, all, all these questions. And this is one of the fun and great things of finding these molecules is now you can actually genetically start testing these hypotheses. And this is something, again, we're in the process of doing. There's some hints that they play a role, but I don't have a complete answer. Um, but it's indeed possible that this could happen. Um, and again, it's an active investigation. Thank you for that. Let's get to some listener calls. Uh, na uh, Nabil, uh, apologies for that, uh, in Menlo Park. Hello. Hi, Nabil. You're on the show. Yes. First of all, I want to say congratulations for both laureates. As it happens, uh, Professor Patafutian Ardem and myself were uh, uh, classmates as sophomore chemistry majors at the American University of Beirut. Oh, so wow. Ardem, a heartfelt, <laughs> a heartfelt uh, congratulations. You, you are, you made uh, Lebanon and the American University of Beirut. Uh, get some really refreshing news in this uh, situation where we're gasping for good news. 
My question for both of you, though, is the importance of public funding for your research and how it contributed to uh, foment your research and how important is it for this public funding to continue for science to thrive and excel uh, during, uh, for, for the next generation of Nobel laureates and scientists. Mm. Ardem? Yes, um, I think, thank you first of all for your congratulations and uh, very touching comments about the effect this has on, on, on American University of Beirut and Lebanon. Public funding is obviously uh, absolutely essential for what we do. We might have some uh, private funding, uh, but most of our research and David's work especially as well is all funded by the National Institutes of Health. And um, this is so essential. And I also think that funding basic research is so important to highlight to the public because in science, it's, it's very difficult to say, I'm going to only fund research that will directly benefit humans in making a drug because science doesn't work that way. Uh, as we talked about here with David, uh, we clone something for this reason, and it actually is very important in our case from touch to regulating blood pressure or uh, fullness. So you cannot predict this stuff in advance. And so I can't emphasize the importance of public funding for basic research and let the chips fall in, in a way that in the next few years, this will be hopefully translated into applications and therapeutic use. Um, and, you know, something that NIH uh, is, has done very well, sometimes they've done more translational, but we always say that it's very, very important to support basic science, science for science sake in a way. Yeah, Nabil, yeah I'd like to say a word about that too. I think that's such a great question. And the greatness of American biomedical research really rests on the NIH and public funding. And, and for me also, uh, the support from a great public institution like the University of California. Yeah. And, and there are so many examples of basic research like CRISPR technology, like uh, drugs for uh, controlling um, HIV and AIDS that initiated from just curiosity-based research without any prior ideas that they would be useful in medicine. Yeah, thank you for that. Uh, Ardem, I also wanted to give you a second just to, to talk about Lebanon if you wanted to and, you know, the, the role that the country played in your life and in your, your later success. Uh, sure. So I'm of Armenian origin, um, but uh, was born and grew up in Lebanon. And I came to U.S. as an immigrant when I was 18 years old. And, um, you know, these both cultures have had a huge influence on, on my personal life. But as well as my career, I think growing up in war-torn Lebanon uh, kind of gives you the grit to, to persist and to not take disappointing news uh, in a way that puts you down. And um, again, I'm, I'm proud of this heritage. And it's actually absolutely beautiful to see the reaction by both the Armenian and the Lebanese community kind of sharing this prize with me, which I'm very happy to do. Uh, both countries have experienced either uh, tough wars or economic troubles the last year and this seems like they're all rejoicing in this and I'm again that this this makes me really happy uh, listener Suzanne uh, would like to know from David Julius given what you said about the generalizability of pain reception when people speak of a searing pain might that be the same receptor as pain caused by heat uh, it could be but it doesn't necessarily have to be <clears throat> I think um it's sort of a pretty complex process how we interpret 
you know, peripheral signals. And in fact, you can have searing pain, you know, through uh, injury to nerve fibers that are not, for example, in your, you know, periphery, in your skin or whatever, through injury to spinal cord or something like that. So, you know, the perception of pain is a pretty complex phenomenon. And if you feel it is stabbing or searing, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's been initiated by that like kind of, you know, of, of process that we would normally associate with an acute or normal protective pain sensation. So, you know, chronic pain or persistent pain is is in many ways different, what we call maladaptive from the acute and useful protective function of pain. So uh, you can't always um, make that parallelism. Yeah. Um, another listener, Bayon, asks, and Arda, maybe you could take this one. If I stab a knife into my hand and then I pull the knife out, why does the pain persist in my hand? How does the injury translate into a feeling that lasts? Um, yeah, interesting question. There's um, uh, multi layers of answers to this. When you're, uh, first of all, at the basic level, um, all these different neurons that sense temperature and pain and touch have many different unique characteristics. So some, for example, we call them rapidly inactivating, others are slowly inactivating, meaning that given you put a stimulus for five seconds, some of your neurons will fire just at the beginning to tell you this is something different that's happened. Others will persist throughout the stimulus. And when you're talking about injury, as in um, with a knife or whatever, then it's not just a mechanical stimulus. When you injure your uh, skin, obviously cells rupture, lots of things are happening, and many of the chemical signalings involved take over, and that's why it lasts longer. So the mechanical piercing might have been the initiating force, but many other things follow, and that's why the pain could persist for a long time. Quickly, it turns into inflammatory pain, which is the body recognizing something bad happened and responds with chemicals that tells you to take care of that area, not to touch it, to tend it till it heals. So interesting. Let's bring in Savannah from New York. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Um, I have a connective tissue disorder, as do my two young kids, and I'm watching them grow up um, similarly to how I did with proprioceptive disorders and chronic pain and um, digestive issues and all kinds of things. And I'm just wondering, first of all, there's ha they haven't found the gene for Ehlers-Danlos, which is the connective tissue disorder that I have. And I'm wondering if your work might help us get there. Hmm. Uh, we, which one of you wants to take that one? Might have more relevant work. Probably Artem. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm happy to take it, but I'm afraid I won't be very helpful. First, you know, we need to make this clear that we, we are not medical doctors, so in no way I can give you any medical advice. Um, but I think this is, this is a problem still, that many of the uh, human, human genetics is just starting to give us answers. And I'm, I'm hoping that even if that hasn't happened yet in, in your case, which again, I apologize, I'm not familiar with the condition, that there's lots of research now that I'm hoping that in the next few years, genetically, they will identify the cause. And this really is something that will open the door to better understanding of the biology and hopefully the, the, the disease that's associated with it. I mean, this is exactly what happened to the patients that I mentioned who do not have PSO2, um, because before identifying the gene, when they went to the clinic, uh, given their lack of uh, coordination, uh, most most doctors assume it's either a motor neuron or muscle disease. 
And in this case, once they knew it was piezo two in our work in animal models, they quickly realized that uh, this might be somatosensory on the sensory side of it. And again, um, the work of Alex Chesler and Karsten Bonneman at NIH identified that these are indeed uh, deficient in sensing touch and proprioception. And although we don't have drugs to to fix this, just this knowledge has actually helped the patients because they know, for example, lack of proprioception can be overcome by compensating with your visual system is to look at your limbs when you're walking, for example. So just the, the basic biology can actually help some of these patients. And I, and I really, really hope this will, this will happen for you soon as well. Yeah. Let's bring in Kumar from San Jose. Welcome to the show. Hi, this is Tamar. I'm very allergic to spicy food. Even the little, the, the least spicy hurts my mouth and it burns. Is there something I can do about that? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Tamar. <laughs> David Julius? Don't eat spicy food. <laughs> um, I think, yeah, some people are very sensitive to uh, to capsaicin and, you know, other spices. And, um like my wife, she's very sensitive to garlic, for example. And I think the best thing to do there is to, you know, know that and then just titrate what you eat. So uh, you don't you don't need to eat spicy food to be healthy. So um, uh, and I, I, I like to eat chili peppers, but, you know, up to a limit. But, um, uh, you know, people probably have different sensitivities because maybe they have different numbers of receptors on their nerve endings or, you um, uh, you know, that you may have some allergy actually to the compound itself. So um, I just be, you know, make sure that you don't eat some really ha- habaneros. I think you'll be fine. <laughs> David Julius, uh, are the same receptors used for capsaicin that are used for other hot foods like um, the the mustards or, uh, you know, wasabi? Yeah, so wasabi hits a different receptor, something actually that both Art and I have worked on as well. And that hits, a, a, again, another molecular cousin of the capsaicin receptor and the menthol receptor. It's one called TRIP-A1. We call it the wasabi receptor. And that's <laughs> activated by some interesting natural products that we know cause irritancy or pain. So that is um, mustard extracts. There's a compound in a lot of mustards called isothiocyanates that activate the channel. And then, um, you know, when you're chopping an onion and then you all of a sudden you get that zing in your eyes, that's unbelievably painful. That's because the when you chop the onion, it releases this very volatile chemical called elicin, and that volatilizes, gets in the conjunctiva in your eye, and then activates this channel called TRIP-A1 on sensory nerve fibers, and then you're in pain. And that's a very interesting receptor that I think has a lot of relevance to particularly to, or, or a lot of potential for pain therapeutics, because it's activated by uh, compounds, not just from plants, but things that our body make. Uh, in uh, in the um, in the aftermath of tissue injury and inflammation, so it's a really important site for something that we call chemonociception, which is the aspect of pain that's related to the interaction with chemical irritants. So, for example, here in California, when there's a lot of forest fires and you're rubbing your eyes, that's because the burning vegetation produces uh, something called acrolein, which is again an activator of this channel. So we use it to know that there's sort of danger in our environment, but it's also activated by things that our body produces when there's inflammation. And that's part of the process to heightening our sensitivity to, to, to temperature and pressure to pain. That's part of the, the pain sensitization mechanism and ultimately contributes to persistent pain syndrome. 
Our Dem Patiputian Professor of Neuroscience at Scripps Research, can I, there's a bunch of different questions from listeners about sort of the sensitivity to pain and the sort of differences between people. With our last minute, do you have you been able to find sort of the biological correlates to that idea that some people are very sensitive to pain and other people are not? Um, in our research, not yet, but there's lots of um, research going on for for exactly this this question. Um, there's variety of um, sensitivities. There's even people who feel absolutely no pain, which of course is really required for um, survival. And um, these channels, other channels that are downstream of the activators that David's lab and our lab have worked, conduct the pain to the nervous system. And again, there are people who just do not feel pain at all. Um, Of course, for um, applications, we don't actually want to um, block acute pain. Uh, And I should also say, again, uh, highlighting how this field is still uh, very strong and lots of things not yet understood is that how we feel acute pain, we still do not know. So the touch receptor that we have identified doesn't seem to be majorly required in telling us the hammer hitting your finger pain. So that's a receptor that's still out there to be identified and we and others are, are still looking at it. Um, so I think that's that, that's all I have to say on that. And, and I think yeah, there's lots yeah. of interesting research still to come. We'll have to leave it there. We've been talking with the winners of this year's Nobel Prize in Medicine about hot peppers, pain, and other things. Congratulations to David Julius, professor and chair of the Department of Physiology at UC San Francisco, and Ardem Padaputian, professor in the Department of Neuroscience at Scripps Research. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum Ahead. Coming up at 10 a.m. with Mina Kim, during the pandemic, many people decided to go gray, and some have happily chosen never to cover their roots again. It's a sign of how the pandemic has forced us to rethink our attitudes about appearance. Have you embraced the silver? And Forum is hosting a live virtual show tomorrow evening from KQED's new headquarters with children's book author Joanna Ho and YA writer Lisa Moore Ramey about writing for kids and the importance of seeing yourself in stories. You can register for the event at kqed.org slash live. And we want to hear from kids and adults. Leave us a voicemail telling us about a book that you recognize yourself in. 415-553-3300. That's 415-553-3300. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. 
Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest waterhole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.